Hi, I'm Tim Ives, and today I'm on the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hello, Ilya. <laughs> I'm, afraid Hello. I can't, I'm afraid I can't do that, Ilya. Oh, uh, it's so funny. I watched a documentary on uh, on Kubrick today. It was a lot of fun. Oh, did you? What's it called? What's it called? Kubrick on Kubrick, I believe it is. It was Sweet. on it was on Canopy. It's you know, it's free if you've got a library card, which I do. So it was awesome. So, yeah, I love uh, Canopy I, I, so much. I highly recommend the uh, the Kubrick documentary on there. It You know, it could have been my short end, but it's not. It's just a little like, you know, bonus. If you got Canopy, check out Kubrick on Kubrick. It's it's fantastic. I love Canopy. I've been an evangelist for Canopy ever since. We uh, ever since I found it, maybe like four or five years ago. But uh, we're not here to talk about Canopy. We are here to talk about who, Ilya, who is on the show today. Uh, on the show today, I'm really, really happy. Uh, someone I'd want to have on the show for a long time, Tim Ives. Tim Ives is a fantastic cinematographer, perhaps best known maybe for shooting the uh, Stranger Things series. But uh, also, he's got a never new- heard of it. <laughs> he's got a new movie out based on the judy bloom book uh are you there god it's me margaret and it is fantastic and i highly recommend it to, to anyone they should uh check it out but before we get into the interview with tim what's our close focus for today what are, what are we talking about what's going on in the industry and now close focus well uh when i look at the jeopardy board for close focus today it says potpourri <laughs> I don't know. What, what does that mean? Potpourri. Uh, that, that's usually a little bit of everything. So here we go. Uh, let's do a quick rundown of uh, what's happening. Are you a fan of like the Bourne movies, the Jason Bourne movies? There's a new one yeah. in the works. Yeah. So, so yeah. Is, that's, uh, uh, is, is Paul Greengrass making it? Uh, it doesn't look like it. It looks like it's going to be uh, director Edward Berger, who is following up All Quiet on the Western Front. He's. I'd say he's cashing in on the Oscar wins of All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, highly likely. Um, I still say to this day, biggest upset in the cinematography Oscars since we've started this podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't gone back to like 1974 to see like, <laughs> oh, no, I can't believe, you know, Godfather 2 won it anyway. OK, so uh, Warner Brothers is setting up screenings of Coyote versus Acme. Are you are you aware of this? I was not aware. I knew about the uh, the big kerfuffle around Coyote versus Acme, where uh, Warner Brothers decided to uh, give it the old Batgirl treatment. Yeah, that's exactly right. It got axed and turned into a tax write-off. I hear they're not doing it with anything else, but certainly there was a period of time where they were just like, "Oh yeah, let's let's take the tax write-off and got rid of some stuff." And then Acme, you know, Coyote versus Acme was was one of those. So, are, but are you sound- familiar with a with an old Joel Lamott uh, documentary called Demon Lover Diary? Oh, I've heard of it, but no, I've, I've never seen it. So it's about the making of a movie, uh, I believe it was in the mid-70s, called Demon Lover, and it's co-directed by two guys, and one of them cut off his pinky and faked it as an industrial accident so he could take the insurance money and use it to finance the movie. That's what Warner Brothers is doing when they axe an entire movie, is they're doing what the Demon Lover guy did. That, I, 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 I think we should call it Demon Lovering It. But uh, I, it, it's uh, that movie's bonkers, by the way. It's just rip shit bonkers. Like Ted Nugent turns up in it at one point. Wow. But um, yeah, 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 it's 
it's nuts. But uh, but more than that, it's like I always think about like literally damaging yourself for a profit, and that's what Warner Brothers is doing. Also, but, they're should, set, but they're setting up screenings. So they're setting up screenings. They're setting up the screenings to streamers so they can so they can buy it. They got so much negative publicity for axing this movie that I guess there was you know some some leaks or some people out there who are who are um, you know really interested to see it at, or had been looking forward to it for some time. And so now they're trying to sell it to another streaming service. So like uh, Amazon Prime is is sort of in the in the front running position right now. It sounds like. Interesting. Well, I'd be interested to see it. I think uh, John Cena's pretty awesome, and uh, I'm a big fan of Peacemaker. I don't know anything about this movie other than it's called Coyote versus Acme, and obviously that's a Warner Brothers cartoon reference, and I think John Cena is a cartoonishly hilarious guy. So, uh, you know, based on that, I would be interested to watch a trailer and know more, and I think it is uh, freaking idiotic that Warner would, uh, would, would try and bury an entire movie, and I still think that they should release Batgirl. You know, there've been a lot of bad superhero movies and or and or superhero movies that have have underperformed I should say. The Flash famously underperformed, but I think that if they released Batgirl, you know, even if they just released it straight to streaming, I think people would want to see it. I watched The Flash just so I could see Michael Keaton as Batman again and I would do that with Batgirl cuz I know they pulled the exact same yeah. gimmick. Also, it's got Brendan Fraser in it. Like there's a lot of reasons to want to see that stuff, and I think it's it's a it's it's a little crazy that a studio would would uh, would do that. Would demon lover it that hard? <laughs> I'm going to make this a thing. Well, uh, here, just to quickly round out the uh, news wrap up for, uh, you know, rundown for what's going on this week. A lot of buzz about Beyonce's new concert movie. It's going to be out in about two weeks, maybe a little bit less, less than two weeks, 10 days from now. December 1st, Beyonce's Renaissance World Tour is looking to capitalize on the Taylor Swift, you know, path that she has blazed. Gotta do it. Gotta do it. So uh, so that's coming out really soon. And then Barack Obama was just in L.A. Uh, meeting at CAA to for, you know, representation on all sorts of scripted and unscripted projects. And now I, I remember from my time at CAA, every once in a while, people would come in and they would have these big meetings in a big conference room and there would be pitches and all kinds of things going on. I can only imagine what it's like to have, you know, the 44th president of the United States coming in there and having all these people, you know, uh, pull out all of their shiniest projects and things that, you know, maybe the president wants to be the former president wants to be involved in something. So I think it's great if Barack Obama was like, I want to be involved in the next Saw movie. (laughs) I would be Uh, so happy. I know that would make you happy. I gonna say that it's unlikely. I I think I, I think it's quite unlikely. Yeah, that's true. Although I remember some years ago, there was a spy thriller, CIA, FBI spy thriller book that he recommended. It wouldn't surprise me if he got involved with something that was about like, you know, political intrigue and espionage. That seems like it's all very much in his his wheelhouse. So that sounds like fun. Yeah. Anyway, so um, I think that's just about going to do it for our news roundup. Let's get to the interview with Tim Ives. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by cinematographer Tim Ives. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show today. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing just fine. This show is about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image, and we talk a bit about business and things like that. You are welcome to talk about as much tech and things that you want, because I am a very technical person, and I do that in sort of like my Monday through Friday. One of the questions I really like to ask people right off the bat, because I firmly believe that... 
you have to be able to marry the technical and the artistic to be good at your job. And you are someone who's very good at your job. Oh, where you. do you where do you come down on that line? Do you feel like you're more artist? Do you feel like you're more technician? How does uh, where does that split come from? I would say definitely not technician, but I, I am a bit of a geek when it comes to um, going over to Panavision or Airy and looking at all these lenses and ooing and aahing. And it's it's like being in a, in a candy store uh, for me. But when it comes down to like the real, like real super technical stuff, I'm not as proficient on that. And I, it's not my it's not my my main strength. I think my main strength is more on the visual appreciation of light, appreciation of, of film and just figuring out what would be the best thing for the project at hand. And that's that's what I love to do. And um, the technical stuff is fun, but there are guys that, that are they can write books on the stuff. And that 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 probably isn't me. Maybe a kid's book. Maybe. I don't know. But well, uh, Tim, you've been around for quite a while and you've worked a lot in television, but also in movies. And uh, your your latest project, which I know was was shot a while ago, is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And it's wonderful. I've seen it. And we're going to talk about all of that. But I kind of want to go back a little bit here before we get into it, because I've been really paying attention to your work ever since the pilot of Mr. Robot, which for me was like, you know, I remember it became uh, on this podcast, I ha- we have this section called Short Ends, where we talk about like our obsession of the week. And after I saw that pilot, that was my obsession of the week. I was like, wow, what is this? What is this show? Uh, and I've really been tracking your your career with a lot of interest since then. And of course, you've done Stranger Things and uh, Power and a, a bunch of uh, different uh, television series, uh, perhaps Girls, maybe you best known for Girls because you did all these seasons of Girls girls and stranger things what do you which format do you like working in most do you do you like working in television do you like working in the feature world what's what's your preference well i, I broke in to narrative uh through television and series and uh, and girls well actually how to make an america was my first real series and we did that for two years i think since then and since uh, stranger things and where i'm at i'm more doing limited series these days than than episodic that you know re- reoccurring shows not to say that I'm against doing one of those again, but that's been where I've been at between Love and Death, which is on HBO, just came out, and a few other shows. But it's uh, I, I like them both. I really love working on Margaret. I hadn't done a film in a while. It was a great opportunity for me, and um, the time frame of it I think is really optimum. You're not you're not doing something intensely for for almost a year. You're doing something for a half a year, pretty much, and um, and it's one director and 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 uh, one vision and. Uh, you can really hone in and everybody can hone in and and, uh, and work towards the uh, the goal. Yeah. T- tell me tell me how you got your start in this business. It is kind of a crazy business and everyone's got a completely different, you know, origin story of how you break in and <laughs> where you start working. Where did you start? Did you d- wake up one morning and say, I'm a I'm a DP or did you was it much more an incremental sort of traditional process of starting at the bottom and, and move, moving on up? Uh, well, you know, really, I was working up in Boston uh, during corporate video, and a, f- a friend of a friend of mine invited me down uh, to New York uh, to hang out on, of all things, the the Guiding Light, the soap opera. He knew that I was interested in this business, and he was gripping on that. And I came down, hung out for a week, and that was it. Um, my wife, which wasn't my wife then, we both came out of New York, and I started PAing, and uh, that was wonderful. And then I did some interning with uh, Jack Donnelly, who's an incredible cinematographer, and did the main workshops to get more familiar with the camera equipment. I came in mostly through camera, not lighting, and then really moved to LA to sort of jumpstart everything instead of going 
waiting another 20 years and moving up the ladder, I really wanted to shoot. So I moved to Los Angeles to the Bolex in early 90s and tested, starved, and hooked up with a UCLA uh, graduate uh, named Frank Sacramento, who is a music video director. And uh, when we were off, we did a spec thing, and then we were off shooting music videos. The 90s were a really great time to sort of try, be a little avant-garde in, in film and to try new things. And I think there was it was a great time to break into it. And so that's what I did. I broke in through music videos, and then the commercial industry caught on, and well, we, we started doing commercials. And ultimately, I, I really wanted to move into narrative. Late aughts is when I started uh, really trying to break into narrative. Do you think that you have a signature style? Is there is there something that that you know is the Tim Ives look? Because I, I I go back through your body of work and I'm I'm looking at a lot of things and I feel like I've got a couple of uh, inklings into it. But you're kind of a chameleon. I feel like you really do you know take on a lot of different sorts of things. How would you describe your style of cinematography? I, I really appreciate you saying that because uh, I, I've never wanted to be pigeonholed. I don't think anybody really wants to be and. Um, I've always wanted to approach projects with uh, with a fresh eye and to take sometimes the opposite of what I did last. Like right after Margaret, I did Love and Death, which is basically like a, a murder, a real a real child murder, and it was um, with no redemption. So uh, that was the opposite of Margaret: lots of redemption and and uh, and no murders. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, I I try yeah I try. I don't really want to bring a certain style that I think is like my style to author anything with. I I, I want to disappear more uh, behind behind the storyline and and uh, support the storyline, of course, but but not show my hand too much. If that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. You want to you want to keep the cards pretty close to your to to the vest, as they say. I don't want to. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you came up in the era of film. Film is now a, I'm going to say, an aesthetic and almost a luxury item. You know, most most of the world has moved on to uh, digital capture and production. Yeah. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people lately who've only kind of come up in, in digital and didn't have that, that history. I, I came up in film and film was basically when film went away. I also my, my freelance sort of career also went away. I, I basically didn't do very much work after there was no more film. My question for you is, did that change the way that you work? Did it change the way that you like? Did it change the, did it change your approach? Having this one particular medium fading to the background, did you find you had to reinvent yourself? Did it make any impact on your life whatsoever? Some people, uh, you know, it's really easy for them to do that. What, what was it like for you? Well, initially the video, when it was all switching over, it wasn't, we didn't have the greatest uh, equipment to work with and the greatest technology. It wasn't like film and, and we missed it, missed it sorely. And I think since then, obviously it's gotten pretty incredible. And, and I felt a responsibility as somebody who came up through film to sort of keep things looking as much as like film as, as humanly possible, that softness and that non-clinical thing that we, that we love and the roll off the focus and so more selective focus and keeping my eye with that film look. So it wasn't that hard. Uh, I mean, also the support behind it, you have digital technicians helping you. Now you have monitors that are really, you know, calibrated and you're looking at what you're, what you're getting and, and it's helpful that way for sure. But um, at first I was very nervous about it and I really lamented the the loss of film. Um, And, but then, you know, I embraced it. I was worried that it wasn't going to be good. And if it wasn't going to be good enough, I might have like packed up my bags and and uh, started working at McDonald's or something. But but uh, it, it is quite good and it's gotten better and better. And um, I certainly enjoy it. And the the cameras that Sony and Panavision and Airy Red um, are all doing are, uh, are all making these days. The sensors are remarkable and the the lenses, new and old, are, are um, 
are really fun to sort of play with and fine tune to to get the look for whatever project uh, you have coming up. It's it's pretty fun. Uh, how do you approach the visuals of a project that you're working on? Um, do you have a particular process where you start to visualize what it is that you're working to, to create? I know it's a collaborative part. You work with directors, you work with production designers and other folks, but how does the, for you, the journey of words into images take place? I think before I actually arrive uh, to wherever I'm shooting or if I'm shooting in New York, before I, you know, before I'm actually on the project, I start looking I read the script a few times. I start looking at films that have meant a lot to me that seem like they might, maybe I might be able to draw something from them. And oftentimes I do. And then I bring those to the director and more often than not, they're the same films that the director has, uh, has been looking at. So that's a, that's the start of it. And then I think we talk about probably talk about light and color first, before we talk about camera movement, some films, the camera moving the whole time, and and all over the place and turning around corners and some are are more observational which i think margaret is of the latter um so looking at light and color we then look at photography photographers uh in the case of margaret i mean it's a i don't know if you want to go into that but it's a it was... i'm ready to get into margaret let's do it let's get let's get into all margaret right. I, I i loved the movie it was it was <laughs> it was so much fun to watch it, there's some some great laugh out loud moments uh, and of course, it's based on, you know, uh, God, I don't even know how old it is, probably 50 year old Judy Bloom book at the, by this point, or maybe 40 something years. I, I, I don't remember well, the year I think, it was. I think it's, it's 1970, I think, is when Judy put it out. <sighs> yeah. So fi- um, 53 years old or something. like. Anyway, uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Tell, tell me how you came to the project. How did this uh, land on your doorstep? Well, I, I, I got to think back. It's been about three years since since I actually got the first phone call. But I got a call from my agent, like it usually happens. And they were interested in me because I probably because. I'd work with kids and um, they probably checked around and it seemed like maybe I had the right temperament for it. And then I, I the funny thing was Kelly uh, Freeman Craig was the director of it. And we had just watched Edge of 17, which was her previous film, not because I had this, I had an opportunity to work with her, but we just happened to watch it because, you know, I kind of love all those, those kind of, those kind of films. And I, I really loved Edge of 17. So then when I, when I put the two and two together, this is the same person. And I'm like, okay, well, this karmically, this or something's happening in the universe that I'm getting called for this. So I really got to pay attention to this, you know, and, and um, we just hit it off on the phone. Um, Jim Brooks is a legendary producer who is a part of it. And he was, he was with us every day and remarkable human being. Um, but Kelly's enthusiasm and love and commitment to this film was very uh, inspiring, and, um, and and I latched onto that right away. I mean, this is a person who really uh, was not going to screw this movie up, you know, <laughs> and be true to Judy and respect Judy, and 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 she did that all the way through. And we had a really fun process in figuring out what it is, what what the look of the movie is going to be. Yeah, it, it's a delightful movie. I don't say that about too many movies, but this movie is a delight, and it really is a, a you know a coming of age movie that I feel like is true to the book and also feels timeless. It doesn't necessarily feel like, you know, it's a period piece. It's it's set in the 1970s. So how does that look come up, come about? It's it's a timeless story. It's kind of a timeless look. It feels uh, true to the era. How do you approach that? How do you make the uh, the past feel contemporary and also still stay in the past? It's a it's, yeah, it's, it's an it's, interesting balancing trick that you guys pull off on this. It's very tricky because we didn't want it to feel too dusty and faded like it was a movie meant for like, uh, you know, now we're going back in time. It's we wanted it to feel, you know, obviously back then there were no cell phones, no computers, no, you know, the kids were, had a different life. But we wanted it to uh, have a feel that 
both had a bit of nostalgia and in, 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 in your memory, but also um, not feel like it's too. Um, I don't want to. Well, I'm going to say it hallmarky. I mean, you know, just to just a so overly sentimental. Yeah, and Schmaltzy. Kelly and I. Yeah. 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 And Kelly and I, 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 it was a great project for me to try to like figure out and get inside her head. What does this want to look like? And I showed her so many things and she's like, no, not that, not that, not that, not that. And it was a lot of, you know, she's a writer. So she's, she's full on, like, she's more of a writer than I think she'll admit to say that she's a visualist, but we've together, we found this, this look and I, I and I'll show you who it's, it's from. It's, this is a photographer uh, who I've loved for years named Tina Barney. Um, mm. who's oh. uh, who's a New England photographer from the 80s and and her her work it had a lot of nat- natural light and and feels feels like documentary but also a little bit kind of kind of studio anyway she's a wonderful photographer and uh, when we, when we looked at this book together it was like a eureka moment and uh that that was it uh, we found that and then we started talking about camera movement and and the simplicity versus complex you know uh ways of filming and and uh, we were off and running. So the aesthetic really comes from Tina Barney, you said, and it's, it was sort of like your your north star as just sort of like the the style that you uh, that it you. It was a embrace. jump off point. Yeah. Uh, the, the, all these pictures are from the '80s, and it was a jump off point. The look of it had a little bit of amber kind of quality to it, uh, like an old Kodak Gold uh, 100 film. And they also have. It was lucky for us the wallpaper and everything was from the seventies and all those pictures too. But but uh, it helped us find the color because it, it felt contemporary, like you were just saying. But also, you know, it, it didn't feel like it was out of place to say that was nineteen seventy two. And we didn't really want. We wanted to say we were nineteen seventy nineteen seventy one, but we never wanted to really say it in a way that couldn't feel like this. This could be a more modern time. Yeah, it's a really lovely palette. It's a really lovely of colors of light and of production design going through this. Uh, sometimes sort of softer earth tone pastels, but never like over, the, never over the top. It never was like, hey, it screamed. This is nineteen seventy something. It, it, it's it's an interesting, inviting almost visual uh, welcoming envelope that I feel like you kind of fall into where it's like, in my mind, I remember things a bit like what's in Margaret. It's a a bit like in this movie. It's not, you know, totally over the top and everything was gold and orange and, you know, and and these really very, very specific sort of things that you see, uh, I'd say like turned up to 11 in a lot of other, you know, period type of pieces. It, It feels like, you know, the real world. So you've got you've got your colors, you've got your your sort of visual style as you're you're breaking down the script, working with a director who tends to be more about the written word. And this is very, very true. There's a lot of directors who come from, you know, uh, acting first or come from writing first or come from the visual first. If you're working with someone who is more about the written word, what do you see your role is as, uh, you know, collaborator? Do you do you talk more about the visuals or trying to work more about the stories, how to interpret that story as uh, as visuals? I think I interpret the story as visuals for sure. Cause like I was saying, you know, I'm here to support the words and that that's the Bible. That's the whole thing. And, um, and she, she wrote it. She, she transcripted it to, um, for the film. So we would just talk about the scenes and how we see them. And she got, she, she knew what she wanted. She absolutely did when we got into it. And, um, I, I just, I just didn't want to have a heavy hand. I wanted to, uh, we, we both wanted it. Everything had to feel like, 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 like it could be like a, a snapshot or a real picture and nothing too theatrical. So that, that was really uh, the main thing, I think. Do you have a favorite sequence in the movie or a favorite scene? Something that is, that stands out to you as, you know, um, something that you particularly. It, 
It's silly, but I do. It's when she's dancing around in her room and my camera operator, Wilda Berome, my B camera operator, who's been with me for a long time. And she's a dear friend. We gave it to her because it was Margaret kind of dressing up and dancing around the room and really a free spirited moment. And she and Wilda just, we just shut the doors and we let them go. We, I don't even think we could have playback. Maybe we had wireless playback, but we, they were doing 360s in the room. And it was just, it was a fun thing because I lit it in a way that they could just move around, but there were areas that she could pop into and get a little more, a little more dramatic light. And I just, I just, I, I love it. I just love that whole sequence. To me, it just brings up the joy of, of childhood and uh, I love it. When you're, when you're working on a project, especially when you, you've got a lot of, you know, got a lot of credits under your belt. Do you ever start to almost deja vu? Like you're set, you're setting something up. I mean, you're working with kids, you're working with, you know, different environments. It's a very different look than stranger things. But if you're always having to do something new, that's really difficult. It's always really difficult to like, try to, you know, always be reinventing the wheel. Do you ever like lean back on like, Hey, you know, I, I know if I do this particular technical thing, or if I do this particular artistic thing, I'm going to be able to get there faster, you know, a cheat sheet. So, so as to get your desired effect, what does your previous work do to inform your, your current project when you're, when you're working there? Are you just trying to really think, I don't want it to look like that. I got to make it different. Or are you saying like, you know, I can use a little bit of that, a little pinch of that, a dash of this. I think, I don't think I, I draw, I don't think I make a conscious choice to borrow from work that I've done in the past. But I, I, I think when you're in a situation, there's always a time constraint and you're all of a sudden, you know, you know, you have three hours, so this is over, but you got a, a, a three pager and you're like, I, I, I have to, we have to get this done in a way that that serves it. And, and how can I shoot this? That's that I don't have to have 14 different angles. I think I use those experiences from my past to be able to navigate. So to get those three hours done successfully, but that's more of a, of a getting the work done kind of thing. But I think I've I've been around long enough now that I and I've screwed up enough things to know not to screw them up again, you know. And and uh, and I've seen the I know where the pitfalls are, and I know I know what works, what doesn't work. So I, I kind of I know myself a little bit better as I've gotten older and 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 how far I can I can go. But I still like I still like that feeling of uh, just outside of the, uh, the the zone of comfort. That's usually the the sweet place to be. Um, not not where you're like, yeah, this is no brainer today. No, I like being a little bit just outside. Like, oh, I'm going to go for this, but I don't know if this is great. But uh, usually, it turns out pretty well if that's the way I feel about it. I think that it's can be very difficult to make a cohesive image across a period piece in particular with your your day interiors, your day exteriors, your night interiors, your night exteriors. Is there anything that you use to I mean, do you do you work with a DIT to uh, take still frames and being able to, to match things back, you know, when you go back and forth? How do you make sure that you keep that sort of cohesive look through all the different styles of scenes that that may come up in a day? Well, um, it first starts with, with building a LUT that was based on on what we liked about Tina Barney's. And we did some, 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 some tests and we built a LUT that Skip Kimball, our colorist uh, out at Company 3, helped us navigate. And I could also, if the LUT was acting a little bit funny or if we found things about the LUT that we did like or didn't like, he, we adjusted along the way. And these days, you just send a, you send a file and he sends it right back, just like an email and plug it in. And it's remarkable. There, there you go. We had a, a great DIT on this job, Jason Johnson. He was great. You know, he keeps an eye on things as well. And and we we have still we we do have stills to match. And so it makes life a little bit easier than it used to be back in the film days, as far as you know, a little less terrifying to have to match a scene that you have to come back to after a week being away from it. 
but we don't I don't always have a DIT, but uh but I, I try to take when I don't have a DIT my computer's hooked up and I ha- I grab film grab still grabs of everything so that way I can look back at it later on. Yeah. Is there a genre that you like working in most? Is there a, a particular style of work that that you think um, speaks to you most? I think um I'm going to borrow this from Tom Hanks because he said something and it stuck with me. And I, I'm going to misquote Tom, but he said, um, I just want to work on stories with flawed characters uh, with hopes of redemption. And it, it really is really what, what I want, what I like, what's the best thing. And I think that kind of storytelling is wonderful, whether it's underwater or in outer space uh, in another country. And, uh, you know, we had we had a conflicted character in Margaret who was trying to figure things out. And and then she realized she's going to be okay in the end. And um, that's great, especially how, when you think about how terrifying it can be to be a kid. I, I think that uh, Margaret really uh, does a, as a movie, does a particularly great job of capturing everyone's sort of like first moment of terror of adolescence, of sort of that, that you know, uh, preteen moving into the future and what exactly does it, does this mean for me? And I think that's really sort of the heart of the movie. It gives everyone who is uh, beyond that age or is that age a moment of reflection of like what it was, what it was like, what it was like for them. Was there something in particular that really appealed to you about the script or appealed about the story that made you decide this is this is the movie I want to do? You know, I, I have three kids, two daughters, and um, I thought the subject matter is something that men and boys tend to be a little bit squeamish about. And my hope was that a movie like this would, would just open up the conversation, really, and, and not make it something that's weird. You know, I mean, the, the first time every guy has it, most not every guy, but um, men at some point have had to go to the go to the grocery store to buy tampons. And, uh, and the first time it can be a little bit rough, but, <laughs> but it, it shouldn't be because it's a natural thing. And it's like, why, why are we, uh, why are we putting a stigma on it? So I felt like a little bit of a duty. and like, that was my coming in. I'm going to, and I learned a lot. Believe me, I learned a lot on this movie. Um, you know, it was a great experience basically. So I know a few people who've seen this movie and I showed it to my family and everyone really liked it. What has the reaction been? Uh, I mean, have you seen it with an audience? Have you seen it with your family? Have you seen it? Have you gotten feedback from other people? What's been the reaction to uh, to Margaret so far? Well, I, I saw it. I mean, I saw it in test audiences originally. The, they were, it was very high scoring in the test audiences, which was great. And this was before color and before sound and, and, and orchestration came in. Um, so I didn't get to see it in the theater, but my family went. And I have a lot of friends that went and saw it. I was overseas uh, on another project uh, when it came out. But the feedback I've gotten from people I've been working with since then in commercials has been um, really, really great. And people send me pictures of their of their daughter on a plane, uh, the blanket at night glued to it. And, um, you know, it's like you can't ask for more than that. And, you know, I think ultimately your family is going to tell you if you did a good job or not. And so they're the highest critics I have. And 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 my, my kids all loved it. And um, and it meant a lot to me that that they saw it and 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 that they um, that they liked it. It's they're they're the, they're the biggest uh, critics I have. I think they'll tell me if they don't like it. I'm really glad to hear that. You know, uh, I think it's a great movie. I think everyone should go out and see this. I think that its timing couldn't be better because I know this is the time of year when when uh, you know it's a, it's award season. People are are starting to get uh, screeners, and I, I hope that a lot of people take a look at this movie and uh, it gets it gets some attention. It certainly gets uh, viewed. Where can people find you online? Or are you online? Do you do any sort of social media? Do you have an official website? If someone wanted to track you down, is there is there a way for them to uh, to see what you're working on besides all of the stuff that they can see in the streaming services and that, that is out there? Yeah, I have a pretty simple website. It's my name, 
timives.com and it has links to basically trailers of, of things that I've done. So there's that. I have a presence on Instagram where I take my camera out. I do these little photo safaris and I take a, take a walk and try to try to get a good picture a day if I can and throw them up every now and then, but they're not really, they're just really for me and trying to hone my eye and keep busy. And uh, I was in Romania on a show uh, in Spain almost all of last year and, and a bit of this year. And that gave me a good opportunity to kind of really dive into my, my still photography as well. But that's just for myself. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, you've been really generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this is a, a great place to leave it. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, me too. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. So that was uh, Tim Ives. So great chatting with you. That was so much fun. I, I really enjoyed that conversation. I can't wait to have Tim back on the show again. Sweet, sweet. So Ilya, I, I think you said uh, earlier that today we had to pay some freaking bills. Yes. Let's thank our friends at Aperture. Aperture, maker of fine, fine lighting equipment that's being used on all levels of cinema now from film students and you know wedding videographers all the way up to gigantic studio projects aperture is doing incredible stuff these days they're making strides that i can't even believe and in nine days and one hour from the time of recording it's aperture's black friday so they're gonna have a big sale and of course that's also going on through all their dealers so of course you can buy them through hot rod cameras but uh aperture has got all kinds of discounts, all kinds of sales. So if you were looking at Aperture products, they've got like a LS600X Pro plus F10 Fresnel and barn door kit. And it's like huge discount bundled savings. Uh, if you head over to Hot Rod Cameras, you'll find all of the Aperture stuff uh, that live at that point. Black Friday, this is uh, gonna be big Aperture sale. Head to Hot Rod Cameras and uh, stock up on any sort of uh, discounted aperture sale bundles that uh, that are out there and now short ends so ben it is our short end time of the show it's when we Woot. talk about our pet obsession it might be anything from across the spectrum of uh you know media or technology what is your short end this week uh, my short end this week is a documentary that is on uh, HBO Max. Excuse me, Max. It's on Max. I feel sad endorsing Max, but it's called Albert Brooks Defending My Life. And it's a documentary hmm. about a uh, comedian, filmmaker, writer, director, actor, you know, multi-hyphenate Albert Brooks. And it's directed by his lifelong friend who he even went to high school with, Rob wow. Reiner, Oscar winner Rob Reiner. And the thing is, like, I'm old enough to remember Albert Brooks making a lot of movies, most specifically Defending Your Life, which is what, you know, the title of this refers to. And Defending Their, Your Life is a brilliant movie. But I honestly didn't really know the origin story of Albert Brooks. I didn't know about what a prolific figure he was on The Tonight Show and Merv Griffin and all these TV shows in the 60s and 70s, et cetera, et cetera. It's just it's really fascinating. It's put together by his really good friend. It's got a lot of great interviews with people like Larry David and Sharon Stone and Jon Stewart, Sarah Silverman. And uh, I just think it's a it's a brilliant piece of work. And I think it's fascinating. And it made me laugh a lot. And, and the thing is that like a lot of times older comedy you know, Monty Python notwithstanding, like older older comedy doesn't always pack the same laugh, doesn't always like get you. But his stuff does because it's he was just kind of a surreal, absurdist guy who would go do these weird uh, stage acts. And they really are funny. He kind of 
I actually feel like I walked away understanding uh, Andy Kaufman better than I had before because I always I never really got Andy Kaufman. And I feel like Andy Kaufman's kind of Albert Brooks if he were mean spirited Um, because they both they both did kind of a similar kind of like mess with your expectations kind of an act. So anyway, check it out. It's called Albert Brooks Defending My Life. And uh, there's lots of interviews with modern day Albert Brooks. It, you probably will, like me, suddenly be like, oh, I forgot that he was in Drive. I forgot that he was in Finding Nemo. I forgot I forgot he was in Out of Sight. Like, you know, he's just su- such a talented guy and just kind of disappears into so many things. I remember seeing Defending Your Life all those years ago, too. So that, 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 sounds, uh, that sounds cool. I'd totally check that out. No, it's totally worth it. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession this week? Well, it's something I just found out about a couple of days ago, and I haven't had a chance to watch, but I've seen the trailer, and now I've read the reviews, and it's called Scott Pilgrim Takes Off. I don't know how you felt about the Edgar Wright movie Scott Pilgrim, but I thought it was great. Loved, loved, loved. I I love, it seems like everything Edgar Wright does. I quote it regularly. Do you really? Wow. Okay. So they've basically taken the style of the original source material, the comic books, and turned it into a Netflix eight-part animated series. And it is not the comics. It is not the movie. It is like a reboot. It's like an alternate universe. It's like, I, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but the reviews online that I've read have been more or less positive. The ratings have been sort of all over the map, so I don't really know what to, to make of it. I, I mean, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch it. I'm probably going to binge a bunch of episodes. So really for me, it's like uh, I've had some trepidation. It's been my, you know, I, I love Scott Pilgrim. I love Edgar Wright. All the, the entire cast is back together from the movie. They're oh, wow. all doing the voices for this animated, which looks right out of the comic book. So it's like, huh, I guess I have, my trepidation is, am I concerned that maybe my love for the movie will diminish if this doesn't like work out right? But, uh, you know, I, I, like, I like the source material. I like everything so much. I kind of feel like, you know, no matter what they do, it'll probably be great. But, but I don't know. I, I haven't like, I haven't made an effort to watch it. I am going to f- probably do it over Thanksgiving. I'm probably going to do it um, over the next few days and, and watch it. So I'm excited for it. Scott Pilgrim takes off, looks super cool. Uh, I'll have to report back and let you know how it is. It's great because like when uh, when the original Scott Pilgrim versus the world movie came out, which I want to say was 2011, all all these people were in their like 20s and 30s. So now they're all in their 40s and 50s. So (laughs) fun. (laughs) And and a a whole lot of like, you know, uh, miles on the odometer since then too. all almost the the entire cast has gone on to do tons and tons of other stuff. Some people were already, you know, uh, pretty well known, but well, like, Man, it's, it's it features like, like a very young Brie Larson before she was in everything. There's there's a bunch of actors in it that are like that, where I feel like when I saw it, like pre like Captain a, America, Chris Evans. I mean, yeah, yeah. like a, just a like Allison Pill is in that movie. Allison Pill, like, she's great. Just a, yeah. just a couple of years after that, almost all of that cast suddenly was like blowing up. And I'm like, whoever cast this was right on the cutting edge of who they knew who was about to be huge. I just love that movie top to bottom. Jason Schwartzman and uh, oh, yeah. Mary Elizabeth Winstead and, you know, Anna obviously, Kendrick. Uh, yeah. obviously, obviously Michael yeah. Sarah and, and, and Brandon Routh, who I've worked with and who's <laughs> the coolest guy ever playing the meanest jerk he's ever played. And he's so good at it. His character is so memorable, too. I, I, I love uh, that he's got vegan powers, which is just I love that. Know, it's, it's it's so good. Brandon Routh. I, I wish he worked. I, I wish he was in everything. He's such a cool guy. I really I have nothing bad to say about him. Cool dude. Anyway. All right, Ben. So that's really just about it for this uh, this episode. Who do we have to thank? How, how did the show happen? 
as always, we have to thank Alana Cody, who's uh, kicking all the ass and getting us all these kick-ass interviews. We have some awesome ones coming up, and uh, we were, just before we recorded, scheduling some new ones. So uh, this is the time of year when uh, all the Oscar movies, the movies that are going to be winning Oscars next year are coming out. And so uh, some years we get more than others of the Oscar nominees, but I'm always like hoping that we can talk to all five Oscar nominees if it's humanly possible. And it is Alana who will make that happen if it is to happen. Also, just dumb luck because, uh, you know, who, who knows who the Schedules five that are going to be Schedules and things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we also should thank Ben Katz, our fine and uh, wonderful editor who makes us sound like not idiots week to week. And uh, lastly, but never least, we should thank Kay's Alatrachi, who, even as we speak uh, right now, I can hear him. I know he doesn't live anywhere near me, but I can hear him composing new music that uh, mm. we might be using in the show sometime soon. Uh, I can't wait to hear it. That sounds exciting. Uh, Ben, where can people find you if they want to find you outside of this podcast? Benrock.com. Go to Benrock.com. Just the way it sounds. And uh, you can find whatever you want to find out about me. Would you say that it's a personal brand website? I, it's it's a lifestyle brand website. It's if your lifestyle, lifestyle is, is being me, and if your lifestyle is being me, I'm very and I sorry. Am. I'm very sorry. I'm super sorry. <laughs> I'm super sorry. There's a lot of dog hair. You know, I'm on benrock.com right now, and it's a it's a very well put together sort of like uh, you know uh, homepage here. But I really think you need a few more logos and a few more things. If you could like cram a few more in there, that w- that would be the best. Yeah, when I built that, I was like, I'm going to put a logo for every major uh, company I've ever worked for up there because like nothing says uh, I'm a brilliant artist like corporate sellout. You know. You've got Shudder, HBO, Showtime, Warner Brothers, Sony, Universal, Imagine, Sci-Fi, FX, Revolution. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of things up there. It, no exaggeration. That's, I've yeah. actually worked for all of those companies. Yeah. Oh, and and look, and Penn and Teller. We did that one together. Yeah, yeah, we did way, that way, together. That was fun. Way back when. Yeah, and actually, I don't know if you ever saw, but the Penn and Teller thing we shot, they used it in an episode of Penn and Teller bullshit. I know, totally didn't see that. I would love to watch that. But wait a second. That wasn't for Penn and Teller's bullshit. We didn't get paid for that. No, you're absolutely right. And they, they asked me for that footage. And I was like, what are you going to do with it? And they, and they said, oh. I, they said we're going to use it as B-roll in Penn and Teller bullshit. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, like they own the okay. footage. So whatever. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so they, I brought it. And then when the episode ran, the whole last section of that episode of Penn and Teller bullshit was our footage. So it was our it was handiwork. Four yeah. cameras. Yeah. You, myself, our friend Ryan Pollock, and my wife Alicia, each one of us on a camera at the Penn and Teller Theater, and it was them doing a trick where they do a thing with the American flag and they and they fold it up and they, it, oh, yeah. they I make remember it that. disappear or something. And they just play that trick out in its entirety from our footage. Uh, okay. Well, uh, you know, good for them. And, and good for us. That, that was shot, fun. Shot on the HVX 200, by the way. And, well, and state of the then, art back then. Back yeah. then, the P2 cards were crazy expensive, and I had to rent like $20,000 worth of P2 cards that I rented from Moviola or something. And we each had to like be hot swapping them while we were filming so that we could get a continuous, continuous take. What a pain in the dick. Remember the era of Firewire? I, I mean, do. Like, I, have, I, mean, I have a Firewire cable right here. It's pretty funny because like there is still some firewire stuff out there and the only way now to get that into like, you know, USB is three cables that you buy which cost $88. How mm. do I know this? Cuz I've done it recently. It's $88 if you want to go firewire to USB. It's a huge yeah, it's it's just Ugh. ridiculous. And but, on that you know, note, and on that note, where can people find you? 
that was all can, an answer to how people can find me. Okay. Well, you know, it was worthwhile. Uh, Hot Rod Cameras. I'm usually at hotrodcameras.com. Well, you know, a good portion of the time. If I'm not there, they know how to get a hold of me. But if you want to find me, reach out to me through Hot Rod Cameras or, you know, sometimes on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a good place to reach me too. I find you on LinkedIn all the time, actually. I see, really? I see, I see your, uh, your activity on LinkedIn. So. Yeah, I'm pretty much posting the podcast there. Pretty much reminding people like, hey, there's this podcast. You should be listening. So. Our widely successful podcast. You know, uh, I noticed the numbers are climbing. So, you know, we're, we're going in the right direction. Yay. All right, yeah. Elia, you want to take us out? Thanks for watching, listening. Thanks for tuning Consum- in. What's, for what's consu- the- Thanks for consuming our content. I, I think we got to come up with a new sign-off because we're trying to serve too many masters here between the, the visual and the auditory. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> this has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.